All right, so just before we get started today, I just have a quick announcement for the listeners that we had moved our record our release time to Mondays so that, you know, I guess you would receive the episode on Monday, but we are changing our schedule back to the previous way it was uh, just because that's a lot more convenient for us, and so episodes from now on will be coming out on Tuesday. Woo! Yeah, see, this is the 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 cool. It's it's basically just like CrossFit, but for podcasts. You just got you got to change things up so that you don't fall into a rut. Yeah, That's I tell correct. you what, I have a big <laughs> weekly calendar on my fridge, and I just move the magnets around for all of the different podcasts and all of the different personal activities, and for going to work and for working on my house and for taking care of my cats and for it's a really big magnet. Board. I was gonna say. <laughs> Got, got a magnet your- for Marvin in there. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. It's really cute, too. It's slightly smaller than the other cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Welcome, everybody, to your weekly episode of your favorite labor podcast. This is Work Stoppage. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. Message me on Patreon if you're a patron who needs stickers. And leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on my giant fridge magnet board on my (laughs) fridge. That's right. (laughs) And, you know... We talk a lot on the show and even in our big, you know, year in review episode about specifically academic worker organizing, because that's it's been one of the things that really has characterized this recent labor upsurge over the last couple of years has been this just this enormous surge in both like organizing of grad student workers, but also, you know, more militant struggles by workers who already had unions. And we saw another example of that this week, uh, just a couple of weeks into the year, where we saw the biggest uh, teacher strike, mm, I think, ever. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting that we keep... It's it's interesting that we keep setting records like that. <laughs> yeah, because this week, and and when I say te- like record teacher strike, I mean specifically university faculty. Because this week, teachers with the California Faculty Association at the California State University system across you know the United States' largest state uh, went on strike on Monday, January twenty second with a full 30,000 professors, lecturers, librarians, and other academic staff who walked out on what was supposed to be uh, a five-day strike to protest the state's refusal to agree to fair compensation for their work. And the strike, you know, fittingly for being so big, hit 23 different campus locations across California, impacting nearly half a million students in what is the country's largest state university system. And this militancy by the teachers there definitely fits a recent trend in California because, you know, not only have we had all the like Hollywood and film studio strikes that we saw last year with SAG-AFTRA and and, uh, the WGA and the enormous, you know, Unite Here strikes against the hotels in Los Angeles, but also specifically we've seen a lot of militancy from uh, teachers 
in California over the last couple of years, as well as as grad students. You know, we saw the huge mass, like 50,000 worker strike at UC, and we saw the, the giant strike by the LA Teachers Union very briefly. So, you know, this is really carrying forward. And unfortunately, though, it based on the fact that these struggles are really necessary <laughs> uh, for workers to be able to continue to do these jobs. Yeah, and I think that this is an escalation. They had done a couple actions before where they mobilized a couple of the campuses to kind mm-hmm. of let the um, university know that they were, you know, ready to strike and, and meant business. But this is really the uh, the ultimate escalation of, uh, yeah, I think we're pretty much all going now. Right, exactly. And and workers have been in negotiation with the state university system since last May. So this is not, you know, a, a, a complete just sudden, all right, contract time, immediate strike. Like the workers have been negotiating for over six months with the state and the, the university administration. And they've been pretty far apart on a lot of issues uh, because like, for instance, the state offered only a 5% raise, whereas the union was asking for a 12% raise, which, I mean, obviously that's quite a bit higher than what the state offered, but even with that, it's lower than the actual inflation rate in the country. So, so very much not an extreme demand. So the other thing, uh, other major key demand that the workers have been asking for in their negotiations was an increase in the salary floor. So moving the minimum rate for full-time faculty from $54,000 to $64,000, as well as increases to things like parental leave and the perennial demand uh, of teachers, which is also the one that schools tend to push back the hardest on, Mm -hmm. even though it's one that would arguably uh, greatly enhance their ability to educate their students, uh, which is caps on class sizes. Yeah, well, the caps on class sizes thing, I mean, it's such a uh, cost multiplier when you make the class sizes smaller. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you if you cap the classes at like whatever, 25 students, but you were previously running 40 students to a class, now, theoretically, even though the administration won't do this in some situations, you have to hire like 40% more <laughs> instructors right. than you previously had. And so like compared to making you know, 15% adjustments in, in each teacher's wages, that represents like a pretty big cost measure for the, the state or the company or whatever the case may be. Now, that's not an excuse on their part. It's just like, that's why this is such a big issue for them is because they feel like a lot of the other stuff, despite being less out of their pocket, actually looks better on paper to the public when they give it up compared to class sizes, which is just, you know, for one reason or another, a little bit harder to understand why that's so important for a lot of folks. Well, I also think, though, it speaks to just the way the system we live under ends up inverting every one of these these arguments mm-hmm. about, like, resource distribution. Because, like, I think if you went onto the street and asked more, most, most people just, like, hey, do you think we should spend more of society's resources on education so that kids get better learning conditions? I think the vast, vast majority right. of people would probably say yes to that. But then when there are people who are like, but you might have to raise taxes on very rich people by a small amount to do that. Right. Suddenly, this is now impossible. <laughs> well, it's almost like you you need to ask people like the the questions that are baked into the questions like that. Like I think if you went out on the street and you asked people just straight up, you were like, "Do you think a child or a, a college student or an adult who's going back to school? Do you think any of these people can learn effectively in an environment where the student to teacher ratio is forty to one?" And, and, you know, who's going to tell you yes? Some Wall Street psycho? That's probably right. it. Like, Yeah. 
It, it, whereas, like, <laughs> instead, we're, we we allocate this stuff. Now we're doing the shit like, do kids really need to go to school until they're 18? What if it was just till they were 14 and then they went to work? We could empower oh, yeah. kids that way. What what if we what if we made teenagers into yeoman farmers? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this we talked country. about that last week with the Indiana story. Yeah. No. Exactly. But of course, you know, in response to the teachers' demands, school administrators, as well as you know, folks with the the Department of Education, have claimed that. You know, as a state school system, they spend the bulk of their funds on staff compensation rather than administrative salaries like you see in private schools, which are also spending most of their money on real estate and shareholder dividends, and then claim that agreeing to the teachers' demands would require cuts to programs for students. Wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, again, is one of those things where it's like it's the, the, the ideological framing that sets these boundaries that are not there, where mm -hmm. it's just like... Well, it's a zero-sum thing. If we spent more on teachers, that means we have to spend less on classes. It's like, well, wait a minute. How big is your budget, and why can't it get bigger? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should try um, spending less on letting all of the rich people in town keep all their money. Have you tried <laughs> yeah. that? I mean, that's costing us a fortune. <laughs> yeah, it's really the biggest expense when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we're being tongue-in-cheek, but genuinely, that's true. But. It's one of those things that's funny because it's one of those things where, like, if you saw the little alien comic where the aliens do something normal, but they describe it really technically, it actually would say something, unlike the alien comic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Very true. Um, but, because that's the thing, is that, like... You can say, oh, well, we can't afford this, but it's like, well, okay, if your staff can't afford to live near the place they're supposed to work, if they can't afford to have one job so that they can actually pay full attention to their students, then it, it's going to be irrelevant that you're just like, well, we'd have to cut things because people simply will not be able to work those jobs. <laughs> And because, again, it's like people like teachers are not just a uh, like a downloadable resource. <laughs> They're human beings who have basic needs like shelter and food and time to see their families. And, you know, with cost of living soaring in recent years, more and more workers have found that their salaries don't keep up. Like a McChicken is three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even the Costco hot dog got more expensive. I Crime. Think I think the Costco hot dog was a, like a bit of a media misleading story because I have been to Costco recently and it's still the same price. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. I'm not sure what the story is on that. Maybe Kalamazoo is just like, we're real out here. But <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. But I mean, like speaking to this, you know, uh, one one worker who, who spoke with the New York Times, uh, Ray Bucco, a, a lecturer in history at San Jose State who has to work two other part-time jobs to make ends meet, said, quote, if I don't do these things, I can't pay my bills. I'm paycheck to paycheck, end quote. And this is someone who's supposed to be an educator of the people who are going to be doing the most, you know, technical jobs of society, the more, mm -hmm. the things that require that additional level of education. And uh, they're worried about making sure that they can keep their two extra jobs. Well, I'm sorry. Like, if you spent all the time and money that it fucking takes to become accredited enough to lecture in history at San Jose State, you should not have to work any other jobs. You shouldn't have to sell shit on eBay. You shouldn't have to drive Uber. You should be fine. Well, and I mean, even not only that, because, like, obviously nobody should have to work, like, multiple right. jobs. But but it's not, like... Beyond the ethics of it, like, it's also just one of those things where it's just, like... 
it, it speaks to how little administrators actually care about the mm -hmm. functioning of the thing they're administering because it's like, look, what do you think is going to provide better student outcomes? Because look, I'll be let's I'll give them good faith, you know, benefit of the doubt. They'll say they actually care and they want the students to get a better <laughs> education. But just okay. work with me on this. It's very All generous. Right, fine, whatever. But, but and you're just like, you go. What do you think is going to give a better outcome for the students? A professor who's paid so little they have to rise and grind two other fucking side hustles like driving for Uber and waiting tables where they have to think about that bullshit and their commute and the different schedules that are assuredly irregular on those other part-time jobs and balancing all of that shit with all the stuff everybody has to do. You think that's going to produce a better outcome? Or, or, or you pay them a little bit more so they don't have to do that and... And then they can focus on all the students. Like, which is going to produce a better outcome? And it would be simple if they actually cared, and clearly yeah. they do not. <laughs> Look, Dan, you're mistaken. I'm not managing an institution that has staff and students. I'm managing a budget that has a real estate portfolio, okay? Very different activity. Yeah, and so, you know, obviously, this the intransigence in these negotiations made it very necessary for these workers to actually flex their muscles collectively. And so uh, this strike was, was chosen... It was timed very specifically for maximum leverage as students return for the spring semester. So choosing like basically that early week right when they come back as a critical moment uh, did seem to at least uh, push the administrators a little bit because barely 24 hours after the strike began, uh, the union announced a new tentative agreement. And uh, per the release from the union, the new deal includes 10% raises for all faculty in two parts. One immediate 5% raise retroactive to uh, July, uh, and then another 5% raise in six months after the new state budget passes. But that one has an asterisk on, which I'll come back to in a minute. And so mm -hmm. initially, obviously, this seems far closer to the union's 12% demand than the initial 5% that the administrators were adamant could not go up. Uh, the deal also raises the minimum full-time salary by $3,000, which is an which is an increase, but it's significantly lower than the $10,000 uh, increase that was demanded by the union initially. Uh, other things in the New Deal, uh, the New Deal increases paid parental leave from six weeks to 10 weeks. That's an unambiguous uh, a good win there. Another key rank and file demand. And uh, also includes, and this is a provision, I, it basically wine garden rights, but for dealing with cops. Uh <laughs> Which huh. I when I read that I was like, this is actually kind of cool. I like this. Yeah, where basically if if the teacher for whatever reason is asked to speak to a cop, like they're doing some investigation of something what happened with a student or something, they or even them they uh, are now allowed to ask to have a union rep with them, just like you would at a disciplinary like meeting with a, your supervisor, which had, that was, I thought that was an interesting provision. That's frankly something I wouldn't even have thought of. And you, that's one of those things where like you see a sign somewhere that's like no, uh, you know, Healy skating on the counter. And you're like, there's a story <laughs> behind it. Like some cops really tried to fuck with an educator one time. And there's some folks in the union who are just like, we're not letting this happen again. Yeah. <laughs> so I did say there was an asterisk on the deal. And because, you know, like, so I read the announcement, and then I was also looking around, because there was a decent number of comments under some of these posts from folks who appear to be uh, members of the, the the union. And folks were pointing out uh, that while you know it's great that it appears that this has a 10% raise in it, 
The issue is that the second part of the 5% raises is contingent on California not cutting the CSU budget at all in the next California state budget. And given the fact that California is currently running a budget deficit, and as we've seen over the last year, Gavin Newsom is clearly eyeing a presidential run and is, is part of the way that he is doing that is by repeatedly vetoing pro-worker laws and taking anti-worker actions. So I think it's totally fair for a lot of teachers who see this to be pretty concerned that it's it, well, like, is that 5% actually real? Or are we anticipating that the state is going to cut the CSU budget, even just by a small amount, which would immediately re- like erase it as a game? This maybe isn't like such a technical consideration on the part of the contract language, but I would counter your question with another question. Is the California budget deficit even real? Because <laughs> budget deficits in the United States are not real. That's not how money what? works in this country. The dollar isn't fucking pegged to anything. <laughs> what? Well, that that's true. However, state can't print their own money they don't control the monetary supply and most states have a balanced budget uh, requirement uh and they like can't actually run deficits legally like yes we understand as marxists it's money is just the universal equivalent it's just an exchange item but like uh operating within the the legal structure that the school is at least during these contract negotiations going to argue is immutable uh (laughs) they will say that you know that that the deficit is real (laughs) even though we know it's not (laughs) cool great love federalism best system Yeah, no, that's yes, that's that that honestly is the is the take here. It's it's one of the ways that federalism is genuinely used as a form of labor discipline by being like, yeah, we do have this whole federal budget here, which we completely control and could really do anything we want with. But a lot of you get paid through these little state budgets that are that are different for reasons that we just completely made up. Yeah, because states are like their own little countries, but they're also not. And either of those things could be in effect at any time, whenever it's convenient to us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so some folks are, are understandably, you know, I think, concerned that they're like, well, is this really a 10% raise that we're getting? Or is it it's really not. a 5% raise? It's fake. With- so, uh, you know, so there there seems to be quite a bit of discussion and debate on whether, you know, this is quite good enough. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, workers are, are voting now. They're, you know, debating whether or not to approve this deal. So, I, I mean, obviously there's some wins here. And getting 30,000 folks out on the biggest faculty strike clearly put pressure on the administration. But this, uh, I, it'll be interesting to see if this deal gets ratified or if the workers decide to go back out on strike. You know, this is one of those ones where I feel like I'm actively rooting for the workers to turn to shoot it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to drag out this whole thing way too much, but the idea that Gavin Newsom is eyeing a presidential run and therefore has to do a bunch of anti-worker things, uh, that that really, to me, uh, really well, just highlights how fucking terrible this system is. I mean, that's, I mean, that's my interpretation like, of what's been going on, but that's I, that's. Also, the classic divide between state level and national level politics is that at the state level, it's very easy to keep the pro worker mask on and do a little few things here and there and not slip up too much. John Fetterman. But once you get to (laughs) the national level as, as a Democrat or in either major party, it's basically required that you get in lockstep on labor discipline and Israel. Those are like the two big, 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 big things. Well, yeah, Hmm. because it's, it's, it's. Domestic class repression and foreign class repression. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, then to to wrap that part of the conversation, continue our conversation about universities. I mean, like we've talked about so many different kinds of university workers when it comes to graduate workers, undergrad workers, adjunct faculty, full time faculty, RAs. There's just like so many different groups in academia, uh, but there is one that we haven't gotten a lot of time to talk about, which is contract faculty. And if you haven't heard of that, I hadn't either. And I think so- we should all be the same kind. A worker i'm so fucking sick of this category's <laughs> bullshit well no because it's funny because because when lena you know you messaged me while you were writing these notes and you were like wait what's the difference between like adjunct faculty and contract faculty and i was like i immediately started to be like this is the difference and i got halfway into writing it was like you know i don't actually know <laughs> yeah it's really it's really kind of arbitrary because there. so obviously there's a bunch of different kinds of positions at universities but it seems like when it comes to what contract faculty are they are faculty that are non-tenure track but also not part-time adjuncts so i'm guessing it's basically like full-time adjuncts but also there's a A featherless biped (laughs) (laughs) i think there's exceptions to that in this case as well a miserable pile of confusing employment contracts. <laughs> yeah. Right? A contradictory taxonomy. <laughs> well, the reason why we're talking about contract faculty because at, uh, is because at New York University, the contract faculty have secured an electro- new- an election neutrality agreement with the administration, which will put them on a direct path to recognition of their union associated with the UAW, since they already have over half of the staff having signed union authorization cards. Hell yeah. And, I mean, the bargaining unit is half of all full-time instructors, which is uh, brings the bargaining unit to about a 1,000 people. And, but why is I, I, it... I, right, hold on. So why is it subdivided so much? I really want to just dig down on this just a little bit and i think it's mostly academia but also it's worth noting that new york university a few months ago denied recognition to to the researchers Mm -hmm. union and forced them to go through the nlrb under the justification that the term researchers was too broad which to me brings up a question of is it that these people are so subdivided because there needs to be all of these classifications or is it that they're so subdivided because it's easier to divide labor and reduce standards? Well, and also I feel like every time I learn about a new strata within faculty, like, cause we talked about this, you know, there's adjunct faculty, non-tenure track faculty, contingent faculty, contract faculty, and of course, tenure track faculty, what you, what people I think think of when they say college professor. And every time I learn about the new one, I'm like, is this all just the same thing as how family dollar names all its workers managers so they don't have to pay them overtime? Like, cause that's all, it all comes off that way to me. Cause I'm like, ultimately at the end of the day, all of these folks are educators. Yeah. Like they all teach students valuable, you know, skills, lessons, things people need to know. That's important work. And and I feel like we should all kind of just treat them <laughs> like, yeah, if you want to have a divider between part-time and full-time, okay, that's an actual difference. But like beyond that, it all just seems like a different, like you said, a different way of di- well, artificially dividing people. I mean, this is the fucking university that can't even agree on the the definition of the word researcher, which is a <laughs> noun that includes the active verb relevant to it <laughs> as most of the word. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's really just 
absurd the way that it's so subdivided because i mean sure some people again like you said are going to be part-time some people are going to be full-time the idea that there should be like the thing that they were was they're called contract faculty so i originally thought maybe they're independent contractors of some right. sort but no it actually seems more like they have a quote-unquote contract with the university that is making them full-time but it's not the same as other full-time but they're also not independent contractors it's just like they're permatemps something yeah, like also, that like, what, it's like the, f- the situation at the big three before the new strike but also like what's the fucking having a contract why does that make you fucking special like employment is a contract or do i misunderstand contract law no like, you're right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true but but anyway, back to the actual story itself because I feel like we could really go down a rabbit hole here on this whole subdivided academia thing. Let's listen to the three of us be confused about academia for more time. <laughs> yeah, we got to get Prez back on here. Yeah. Uh, but the the union themselves plan to fight for things like job protections because they're worried about uh, you know if workers upset wealthy donors which is a strange thing to uh, have to be worried about getting upset about. Uh, if they get doxxed or experience attacks from right-wing people, which is something that people in u- that workers in universities have faced quite a bit. And there was well, a couple it, other things on the list, but like... Especially re- recently. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, with the, with the whole like university people standing up for Palestine and you got like Canary Mission out here trying to ruin people's lives. Well, and yeah. also like the wealthy donors thing is kind of like... seem. It's one you wouldn't think about in almost any other situation, but you do kind of wonder like if the my pillow guy sends his son to college there and he donates to the university to get him in, and then you try to teach the my pillow guy's kid that like racism is bad or whatever, <laughs> and then he tries to get you fired. Like you know, if you don't have any kind of protection, he might just get you fired. It's it, true. It has been happening to yeah. plenty of people over the last few months. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Peter Lee, uh, in an interview with Jacobin, said, quote, One of the biggest things is job security. This is the group of contract faculty who are not tenured or tenure track. We are also not adjuncts, but the adjuncts are protected by a collective bargaining agreement as well. And so are the grad students. So being in between, we get the squeeze a little bit. Having a union in place, having a collective bargaining agreement will allow us to have some of these protections that other faculty and the grad students have enjoyed the last couple of years, end quote. And I got to say, like... These contract faculty really do seem to be threading like an impossible situation, not just in that they've been left out in the cold compared to the other workers at the university, but also in just like having to explain their fucking position. They're like, we're not tenured. Mm -hmm. We're not tenure tracked. We're not adjuncts. Uh, but the adjuncts have some of the stuff and the grad students have these other things. It's like trying to explain the Pokemon resistance type chart to somebody <laughs> who's never fucking seen Pokemon before. Yeah. I also really think that like once all of these people have unions, because cl- clearly they've been forced to unionize in all of these different separate bargaining units, uh, they should really put a concerted effort into uh, forming a wall-to-wall union and consolidating all of these. Because especially here at NYU, almost all of the bargaining units are UAW, if not all of them. They didn't actually, when I was reading about it, there weren't any that were described as not UAW. So it's possible that all of the workers here are in 
different bargaining units in the UAW. And that's also like the dialectical shape of the institution, right? Like the thing that they need the most, which is like wall-to-wall solidarity and, and union coverage, is the thing that is the most obstructed by the institution. Because the institution has people whose job it is to sit around and identify how to fuck the workers day in but, and day out. But thankfully with each one of these... sorry, As each one of the separate units gets organized it creates like you're saying lena this opportunity Mm -hmm. for creating something you know like the united nyu labor council or something where they just have you know a delegate from each one of the bargaining units when they want to coordinate stuff they have i'm sure and i'm sure they'll put together some sort of coordinating body like that i'm sure some there's been plenty of coordination in the process of of doing this organizing in the first place hopefully at the very least coordinating contract end dates that would be that would be pretty important i mean that's one of the interesting things is they're all at the same university so you know these people in these different organizations get face-to-face time with one another it's not like they have to hang out in a slack channel or something to make it work like they know each other by name (laughs) Mm mm-hmm Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, on another point, the uh, contract faculty workers are fighting for pay equality Mm -hmm. as some of the people with the same job title can make up to $50,000 a year less than other workers in that same category. Just a whole ass salary. Mm -hmm. Right? And also related to pay equality, while these are technically faculty, they are not allowed to live in faculty housing, which is another one of the caveats of this particular type of faculty. And so they often have to take really long commutes and live in places that really increase the cost of actually doing this job. And so that pay equality matters a lot for people who especially are at the bottom of the pay scale. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, and I, there was a, a couple other things on their list, which were standard uh, things that, that university workers fight for, you know, family care and, and all of the, the different job protections that a contract would provide them. But uh, it looks like they're on the way to win. And we wish them solidarity in, in their struggle to uh, get a good contract. Hell yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, one thing, speaking of solidarity, one thing that I wanted to check in this week is is the status where we're at in the la- labor movement more broadly uh, in the U.S. as far as the response to the ongoing genocide in Palestine. Obviously, the just the other day, uh, yesterday when we we're recording this, uh, the International Court of Justice's verdict came out, and there's a whole lot of immediate propagandistic bullshit coming out of the Western media about it, but... Uh, this has been kind of at the forefront of, of, of a lot of organizing right now, and this is actually going to flood over into our next story, too. But uh, this week started with actually, you know, the largest union in the United States so far to join the call for a ceasefire officially, which was the SEIU, the second largest union in the country. Uh, on Monday, January 22nd, Mary Kay Henry, president of the SEIU, issued a statement on behalf of the union's two million members calling on the government to demand an end to the genocide in Palestine. While the statement unfortunately draws the liberal false equivalence between the acts of October 7th and the nonstop campaign of genocidal slaughter since then, it remains a major step forward for a U.S. labor movement that has historically been tied at the hip to U.S. imperialism and has so far been unfortunately rather slow to show solidarity in a lot of ways uh, with our uh, fellow workers in Palestine. So, and in the statement, the union said, quote, 
We call on elected leaders to come together to bring an end to the violence and demand a peaceful resolution that ensures both lasting security for the Israeli people and a sustained end to decades of occupation, blockades, and lack of freedom endured by the Palestinian people. This war must end as it is expanding into a regional conflict. It is time for long-term solutions that will bring safety, peace, democracy, and justice to all in the region, end quote. And so the SEIU is the second largest union uh, in the country, and even, you know, a relatively milquetoast statement that should have been made months ago is, by relative standards of the U.S. labor movement, a big step forward. The only union that's bigger than the SEIU, the largest union in the country, the National Education Association, they, while they have not officially joined the call for a ceasefire, they have faced massive pressure from the rank and file within their union to endorse a ceasefire. Uh, it's just the leadership has dragged their feet so far. Uh, and in a piece published at The Nation on Monday, Sarah Lazar spoke with NEA members about their fight to get their union on the right side of history. And uh, members of the NEA have formed a caucus, Educators for Palestine, to press not just for their union to endorse a ceasefire, but actually to rescind the union's or endorsement of Joe Biden until he does as well. So forever. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm just really glad to see like folks actually making that demand because mm -hmm. you see all these people out here treating that like it's a ridiculous thing to even suggest when it's like that it's just morally consistent. But Dan, if Joe Biden, if we make him call for a ceasefire, then we won't be able to rely on him to be more liberal that wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I, I think yeah, I, I just think that this is like really important uh a really important way to get unions to stop supporting Democrats because if we start drawing these hard lines where we're like, we expect this. You say that you stand with unions. Well, the unions are are making this demand, and if you don't step up to the plate and actually like listen, then we we have no reason to associate with you. And and I think that this is not only an incredibly important place to draw the line, but also a step in the direction of drawing that line in other very serious places. Yeah, I mean, there's just this tired old conversation in the United States where, you know, certain types of union people are like, look, we have to support the Democrats. They support unions. They support workers. And then, you know, people like us come along and we're like, no, they don't. Here's all the times that they didn't. Here's all the times they could have. Here's all the evidence. And they're like, well, the Republicans don't support workers. And we're like, yeah, they're quite open about it. That's not a mystery, guys. <laughs> and they're like, well, then the Democrats support workers. And it's like, no, they fucking don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, cause it, because it, it always becomes like, yeah, no, they got they got real problems i wish we because you you hear this from people who are you know even somewhat sincere if misguided and naive there you get this like look i agree we i wish we had a labor party but we don't so we just got to be realistic and yeah I, the democrats aren't great but they're better than the republicans which i'm like oh so you're telling me it's better to get stabbed 27 times than to have my head cut off yeah what a wonderful distinction well, and also, like, I think there's this thing about Palestine in particular where people kind of see it as just this, like, nebulous foreign policy issue where they're like, oh, there might be, like, some ideology about, like, whether or not you're a racist or whatever at play or whether or not this and that. It's like, one, no, those are actual people.
people. They have lives. They're dying. It's an enormous crisis. It's the biggest crisis in the modern world, period, full stop. And two, are they not also workers? (laughs) Are the Palestinians not your fucking fellow workers in the first place? So even outside of like all of the, the, the weird foreign policy calculus that people are doing, it's like, shouldn't you just stand up for people who wake up every day and cook food for each other and educate each other and heal each other when they're sick and all of the things that workers do that make civilization a civilization, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, a really good point. Absolutely. And so this this caucus that's been formed, Educators for Palestine, uh, until the union actually makes the step to unendorse Biden, which, of course, we're not necessarily expecting them to do, uh, They the members, though, are making actual material pressure points to try and, and you know, show the union that it's like, no, the members actually care about this, which is uh, all the folks involved are launching a pledge to not make any contributions to the union's political action fund Mm. until the union's political action committee aligns with the actual values of the union, which just seems uh, like a basic thing to do, uh, but is is one of the tactics they're using to, you know, try and get the Mm -hmm. union leadership to actually listen to the rank and file. I'm also I'm always so curious to see the way that these political action funds or political arms of unions are structured because I hate to say it but it seems like a lot of times they are just straight like you know when you go to the bank back in the day and they had the tube with the thing and it would suck your money up and it would just yeah, go straight my, my into the bank union still has one of those yeah well <laughs> I think the Democrats still have those installed in a lot of unions in the United States <laughs> yeah no it's just a big funnel it's it's bullshit and 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 so. You know, we there was a an, a quote here uh, from you know one of the workers who spoke with Sarah Lazar, uh, Rahaf Othman, who's a 27 year veteran teacher in Illinois, who said of the union's endorsement of Biden, "quote As a Palestinian American, it hurts because our union has been very focused on racial and social justice, and supporting him when he is not only funding but also sending weapons, killing my people." sends me the message that we don't matter and that we are collateral damage and that that's okay, end quote. No, and that's that's really an important way to phrase it because there is such a dehumanization in the way that the whole thing around Palestine is covered by liberals and and the the kind of... uh, real politic or whatever you know bullshit excuse they have for why you know this has to continue in whatever way uh you know we have to support the democrats similar like with the way john was explaining it and and it's just absolute bullshit it's genuinely dehumanizing and bullshit there's no there's no actual like real grounds to do something like that to support joe biden in these in this genocidal endeavor unless you actually also uh are are just choosing to ignore the fact that that is a genocidal endeavor you have to actively be trying to ignore it yeah so obviously you know we've heard from a lot of people who are rank and file and there are even whole like uh, districts that have voted within the nea to support i think uh the oregon education association i think is one of the largest uh, groups within the NEA, the subgroups that have has called for a ceasefire. But uh, per Sarah Lazar's reporting, the bulk of the NEA board remains opposed to signing the ceasefire resolution, but the pressure has increased. At least one executive board member is, supports rescinding the union's endorsement of Biden, and more and more state and regional bodies of the union are joining the movement to end U.S. complicity in genocide. So uh, while the NEA has so far held off on, on, on signing the ceasefire resolution, it does seem like the pressure is pushing them towards there. And 
that pressure is also not just building, you know, within the NEA, uh, but like mm-hmm. uh, that continues to stretch across various fields. Because one other thing that I did want to mention is, well, this week was the Sundance Film Festival in the U.S., and uh, there was actually quite a few workers involved in protesting there. Uh, film workers for Palestine reported that actors and film crew members at Sundance were told not to mention Palestine during media uh, for the film festival. Uh, Several workers, however, uh, refused, including the crew of the film Union, which documents the ALU organizing drive at JFK 8, who refused to follow that directive and use their platform at the film festival to speak out against the violence. And actors India Moore and Melissa Barrera, who were fired from the next upcoming entry into the somehow continuing Scream series oh my God. Uh, for their vocal uh, support for the Palestinian people. They they were also attending the film festival and uh, joined a major protest outside some of the screenings, calling out studios for their complicity in the violence. So No shade to these uh, actors. I'm glad that they stood up and did what was right. But like, oh, finding out that there's still Scream movies being made <laughs> is a bit like finding out that Maddox still has a website. <laughs> yeah just disheartening frankly (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyways fuck scream but yeah i mean really good to see you know all these workers continuing to stand up and fight back um but to roll into our next story apparently we just kind of have to have a running um segment on the uaw now because the uaw is just doing so much you know what the music means unfortunately (laughs) this is going to be a very contradictory segment this week oh good Uh, dialectics yeah, there's there's some real good stuff and some real not great stuff. So uh, I'll start with the we'll start with the fun part, which is talking about the UAW's drive uh, at the Mercedes factory outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've mentioned that a couple of times on the show. Is that's you know one of the non-union auto plants that the Stand Up 2.0, as the UAW is calling this major organizing drive they're currently doing. It's one of the places that has shown the the biggest initial success mm-hmm. in, in drawing many, many workers on board. And so there's a recent piece in Labor Notes from one of the worker organizers at that plant talking about the way they're running their drive there and also how it differs from previous organizing attempts that had been made that had failed at the factory. And I just wanted to run down some of those points because I think they're really interesting and also point to lessons learned at this plant that, you know, potentially could be used by other workers. And so one of the things that the author of this piece, J- uh, Jeremy Kimbrell, who's an auto worker at the Mercedes plant, said that already put their their drive apart from standard practice as far as organizing is that they started with a really, really small core of organizers. For a plant that has like 5,000 workers, they started with only 20 core organizers. And they said that uh, when they'd worked with union organizers in past years, UAW organizers would recommend not releasing union cards openly to the members until they had at least 10% of the workforce involved with the organizing committee. But Kimbrell noted that while there's a ton of workers who are excited about joining the union, and there's a lot of people that support the drive, auto workers are really overworked. And so there's a lot of folks who, while they, they think the union's a great idea, happy to support it, aren't necessarily rushing to jump onto the committee and sign themselves up for hours and hours and hours and hours of additional work every week. So what they've decided to, what they tried to do to basically leverage how workers are invested in the drive, but maybe not in this traditional mode of organizing. Uh, So instead of 
asking supporters to commit fully to joining the committee right away. They focused on building workers up to support the drive in ways that they already are. Like, for instance, okay, you don't necessarily want to join the committee and come to these, you know, meetings maybe two, three times a week and Mm -hmm. do, like, uh, door knocking and stuff. Well, can you talk to people in your department, on your part of the line? Can you commit to, you know, having these face-to-face, one-on-one organizing conversations with folks that you work with closely, who you know, but maybe aren't already union supporters? And so... By being able to leverage that, so even if somebody doesn't want to sign up for the like jump in with both feet on being uh, joining the organizing committee, they can still do this extremely important and time intensive task of outreach and and can still help push the drive forward. And one other thing that they have done that that parallels more traditional union organizing technique, of course, is identifying organic leaders already in the workplace for maximum effect. Um, and so by gaining the support of worker leaders who already have respect of their coworkers, those fo- folks act basically as like force multipliers for the union, where you're not just organizing one person, you're basically organizing an entire sector of, of the factory at once by bringing in folks who are already like really well respected. And uh, it, uh, the other thing that that really helps do is protect the drive against allegations of being a third party. You know, obviously we hear that in basically every single union busting campaign that we talk about. But if you have, you know, the folks who everybody in the plant knows have been there for decades and are the ones that everybody goes to if they something breaks or something goes wrong and they don't know how to fix it, if those people are on board, it's a lot harder to, to you know, convincingly say, oh, this is, an, this is outside agitators. <laughs> so... That's been a big uh, point of focus. But in addition, though, you know, they, they pointed out that it's not just about who has respect, but in a plant as large as theirs with 5,000 workers, they needed folks who are in contact with as much of the plant as possible. So they also, when they were mapping out, you know, who can we take the small resources that our organizing committee has and really focus intensely on bringing on board – in addition to those leaders, they also needed folks who were mobile. So that And that's something that if you're at a smaller workplace or one that's more condensed, that may not be something you need to focus on. So I thought I think that's something that it, you have like the universal looking for leaders and then mm-hmm. also the particular. What is it about your workplace that like specifically impacts who are going to be the people who support you need the most? Right. Yeah, because I mean, like in any given workplace, the it's there's like two layouts happening. There's the formal layout of the actual employment, like you know, people who are like veterans, people who've been there a long time, have a lot of respect, maybe have more responsibilities. But then there's also like just the social mapping of it. Like, how do you identify people who are fr- on like highly friendly terms with a lot of different influential people in your workplace? And that could actually be quite tricky to do, especially Boring. from the outside. Or even like like who are the people who end up in different departments? Right. Who are right. the people who are are around the plant who might like be on this line for a little bit, but then they end up getting sent over to either another line or or end up you know talking to people in a different in an entirely different section. I don't know how automotive plants work very well. well. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> there, there's even more like finely grained stuff too, where it's like, yes, is this person a good organizer? But also like, are they subtle? Do they know how to read right. a room? Room. Do they know how to 
say something that means one thing to one person but doesn't mean the same thing to the boss. Like, you know, those can be tricky as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in addition to these, you know, adjusting their tactics for their, their situation, they've also been doing things like taking advantage of new technology, mm -hmm. like the existence of digital union cards, which workers can access using a QR code. That has allowed a smaller group of organizers to move faster to gain a large number of signed cards than would have been possible in the past where they had to hand them out physically. That's wild to me that we that digital union cards are like a burgeoning technology in 2024. I you know, I know that it's like hard for like labor organizers to to stay up on this stuff, but you would that seems pretty simple. Like how long have we had e-cards for your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know necessarily that it's like technology unsavviness by the unions so much as it is bureaucratic red tape to change how you do anything right. under the NLRB. Right. Yeah, they probably still want you to send stuff faxed in triplicate or like <laughs> mail them a carbon copy or something. Yeah. Exactly. If so, it's not written in blue pen, I sorry, this one's written in 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 black pen. Can't have that. <laughs> oh, we this had to be filed in triplicate. You only sent us two. Uh, sorry, this invalidates your election. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's but it's that's the thing with these institutions. They're very slow moving, but like and so the campaign at Mercedes in Alabama is still in its early stages, but so far the prestige of the UAW after the stand-up strike seems to be paying off. Over 30% of workers at the plant have already signed cards, and they've signed it at a rate three times faster than it took to rate, reach that same milestone in an earlier campaign. And so the next few months will show us a lot about how far these tactics that the workers have adopted, how far those have been able to carry this campaign and how much success that it's going to have but we're off to a pretty fucking strong start so excited to continue to follow developments at mercedes in alabama hell yeah and so the other big thing though for the uaw this week was this week was uh their i don't know if it's annual or if it's biannual i think it's or actually i think biannual is twice a year this is this is the thing with english adopting these prefixes from other languages <laughs> yeah, I think biannual is twice a year, but I think biannual is also every two years. But then also there's biannual, which only means once every two years. Well, uh, then there's semi-annual. Oh, and then there's also biennial, which is the second year uh, celebration of something existing. <laughs> All right. So anyway, English is stupid. Uh, <laughs> bad language. But anyways... This week was the UAW's Community Action Program Conference, which is basically when the union comes together to talk about their political work, both at the national but also at the local and regional levels. And so a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of good rousing speeches from UAW leaders, including one from uh, Region 9A director Brandon Mancia reiterating the union's call for a ceasefire, which we actually have a clip of, which we'll insert here. So we are in a new chapter of our union's history, returning to Generation UAW and what that means. But we're only going to be able to lead if we remember our history and we build from it. We learn from the sit-down strike so we can innovate with the stand-up strike. And just the same, we look to our history of supporting civil rights and human rights in calling for a ceasefire and a lasting peace in Palestine and Israel. While our membership is more diverse than ever, All right, so, I mean, obviously, that's some good stuff. You know, that's that's the stuff I, I want to hear from, from, from union leaders. Uh, I also just, you know, 
in particular, I think Brandon Mencia, like since being elected, like the director of region nine a has been like, even, you know, within the UAW improving has been in particular, like a standout as like a really, mm -hmm. really good, uh, militant union leader. Yeah, definitely. I also love that all of our all of our UAW folks are always highlighting like the sit down strike leads to the stand up strike, and we're going to innovate something next. And I keep thinking like it's like a flip book almost. Like next is the walking strike, and then we have the running really fast strike, and then we have the <laughs> jump ten feet in the air strike. <laughs> yeah, and I mean I bring this up often. Uh, I think when when we talk about Brandon Mencia, but I believe that he, he his the very first super cool thing that I remember hearing from him was the uh, when people were complaining that the strike benefits were higher than someone's wage, and he's like, "Well, that just means that they should go on strike because that shouldn't be the case." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> I know it's it's so great to hear people just make these statements that are like clear and obvious and true, but that again the the ideological trappings of the system that we're in forcing us to try and reify it are just like no, you can't do that because reasons. Yeah, actually, <laughs> if you make more on strike than you do at the job, that just means that you're being dishonest. <laughs> yeah, or somehow something like that. Yeah. But, <laughs> Yeah, and then, of course, obviously, at, at, a, at a national gathering like this, there's going to be quite a bit from Sean Fain, uh, including uh, bringing back up the calls for the a general strike on May 1st, 2028, and we've got a clip of that, too. Something that's not talked about a lot, but it's very significant, is we set a new contract deadline for May the 1st, 2028, May Day, International Solidarity Day. We did this for two reasons. I've always thought in my walk as a union rep that September was the worst time in the world to be going out on strike because sales start lagging when we get into the winter months. May made a hell of a lot more sense. But it also made sense to do it in a unified approach. We got to get back to the days. We got to pay for our sins of the past. Back in 1980, when Reagan at the time fired the PAC co-workers, everyone in this country should have stood up and walked the hell out. We missed the opportunity then, but we're not going to miss it in 2028. That's the plan. We want a general strike. We want everybody walking out, just like they do in other countries. Hell yeah. I mean, like, that that rocks. Uh, he did use sins of the past, though, and... Uh... We're about to uh, see a well, sin of the present. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny because, like, it, sins of the past is such weird language. But then he's like, we should have stuck it to Reagan. And I'm like, you know what? Not yeah. sticking it to Reagan was a crime. We failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, it, no, and I mean, look, I, I, I will continue to approach Sean Fain with good faith here. And that's what makes that so frustrating uh, mm -hmm. because I think that was a sincere speech. And unfortunately I think that the one that he followed it up with was as well because, and well, and one, one thing that I want to just say, it was something that we talk about a lot is like, we are not under any illusion that Sean Fain is some secret communist. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, I, it's, it's, it, that, that would be cool. That would be cool if he was secretly Harry Bridges, but 
Like we know that's no. not the reality. I mean, politically, Sean Fain is just like a much more advanced version of my dad. Like <laughs> his politics are like light years beyond my dad's, but the I think the hard cap is at about the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, what we've been alluding to, and I'm sure what we're what our, our listeners are well aware of is that immediately following all of these very good speeches that all made really good points and 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 stood on a solid moral ground. On Wednesday, January 24th, the union leadership then fell right back into some of those same old sins of the past that that Sean Fain had referenced earlier when calling for a general strike, uh, which was endorsing Democrats without getting a goddamn thing in exchange for it. Because at the conference this week, the UAW announced that they would finally be, you know, per the the liberals, finally uh, be be launching their announcement that they are endorsing Joe Biden. Uh, in a speech where Sean Fain said, quote, the choice is clear. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. If our endorsement must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it, end quote. It's so weird, one, that Fain just totally whiffed like this. Just a huge miss. Sorry, dude. Sorry, dad. You're wrong. <laughs> Um, but also like so weird to say Joe Biden bet on the American worker. Like it'd right. be such an honor to be wagered on. How about some <laughs> fucking help? How about <laughs> Joe Biden aided the American worker? Except you can't say that because it's patently untrue. Yeah. Well, I, and, and, you know, and uh, I'll get into my thoughts on this in a sec, but I just, I just want to lay out like what the response from members has been because, mm-hmm. you know, some rank and file members very immediately expressed shock at the quick vote by the executive board to endorse somebody responsible for the genocide that the board recently voted to condemn. Several UAW workers interrupted Biden's speech at the conference, chanting ceasefire now. One worker was literally dragged out of the room by Secret Service agents. And the worst part of all of this, I mean, as if that wasn't bad enough, many UAW delegates immediately started chanting UAW to drown out the protesters as they were dragged away. And what I found to be... One of the more shameful moments in recent labor history, personally. Yeah, and I mean, really paralleling what was happening at some Biden rallies Mm -hmm. when people started shouting ceasefire now and then people start shouting four more years. It really had a parallel that was very uh, puke emoji. Uh, Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredibly fucked up. And and I mean again, this is all of this is it's UAW members and UAW it's all this is all internal to the UAW. Like and over 500 UAW members had already signed a a, a quickly put together petition calling on the International Executive Board not to endorse any politicians who refuse to call for a ceasefire, which makes sense because if again, if you're if you make this statement that you support a policy and then you go out and endorse candidates who do the exact opposite of the policy, what the fuck does it matter whether you call on any policy or not? It's meaningless. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it, Really, really important to say that. But, and, and you know, uh, one of the UAW members who did speak out during this, uh, Johanna King Slutsky, uh, spoke with The Intercept saying, quote, I think this is a situation where we need to push them to live up to their own principles that are what we're inspired by. You know, Sean Fain is the one who said, you got to earn our endorsement. A president who supports genocide and is actively sending funds and weapons to Israel to kill children, families, that's not something I feel has earned my endorsement, end quote. 
And yeah. Yeah. So I just want to talk about this a little more because this is like, this is like, this is bad. <laughs> this, I don't have like a very art, well phrased way to say this, but this is, was really disappointing. It's not, and it's not that UAW endorses Joe Biden. That's not the part that has me quite so disappointed. It's how they did it mm-hmm. and the timing in which they did it. And the fact that there's been no discussion whatsoever on the fact that it is completely at odds with everything that they've been saying on the issue of ceasefire for the last month and so much of what they were saying before that. Right. I think that one of the things that we've talked so uh, in high praise about Sean Fain is the shift to the rank and file method of running the union. And when we see that, for one, so many locals had originally called for this measure, which then got escalated to the to the national where they they signed on to it like that was uh, an aspect of the rank and file nature of the UAW. And and then, you know, to see them kind of just get rid of it brings us back to the area of not that of not that rank and file style struggle and i mean we even see that with the following day where local uh 551 put out an even stronger statement which tried which called for like the refusal to build weapons uh destined for israel the refusal to transport weapons to israel and uh, like a lot of the things that the uh the the palestinian union had called for and so i mean we've already even seen the rank and file push back on that and i mean if we don't see the uh international board do something to kind of roll this back like it's gonna put so many negative questions into the air that uh like i just don't i don't see how this is not going to cause major problems for them for quite a long time on top of the fact that it is just wrong in the first place well i mean like this is one of the driving forces behind why we frame ourselves as a socialist labor or a communist labor podcast not just because that's in no unclear you know measure precisely what we are but also because like as much as we are happy to support and and be interested in the movement of workers within the the union system that we have now the labor system that we have now it's like bourgeois liberalism and this weird fixation on electoral cycles in the united states is undoubtedly one of the principal if not the principal stumbling block for the potential of radical unionism in the united states like full stop i i can't think of anything else that's doing more work besides maybe the misclassification of about you know a third of the workers in the united states is not under the uh the nlra well and it's so much of this just drives me crazy with the like because I, again i well i at no point i'm like in, anticipating sean fain coming out here and declaring for the bolsheviks sure like, i'm not at no point was i expecting that and i you know anticipated that the uaw would probably endorse biden at some point but you cannot come out there and say we're changing the way that the 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 union operates we're not doing business as usual we're not just handing out our endorsement for nothing our endorsement has to be earned and you come out here and say joe biden bet on the workers and that's just not true and your members know it's not fucking true like 
where where was Biden betting on the workers in the first two years of his term when the Democrats controlled every single part of the goddamn government? They didn't pass the PRO Act. They didn't even raise the fucking minimum wage. They haven't done a goddamn thing. The, the Inflation Reduction Act was an enormous handout of money to business owners with no requirements whatsoever to protect workers' rights. None. It's, there's like a couple of lines in there that are the most easily avoided loopholes in the fucking world. He hasn't done a fucking thing except negatives for workers. So like, why are people supposed to believe you are standing on principle when you say, I believe in peace. I believe we need a ceasefire. I believe that we should only endorse politicians who actually listen to us and materially support workers. You say all these things and then you go out and do this, which flies completely in the face of all that. Well, and also beyond even Joe Biden, like his entire party has been in in quite literal terms, betting against workers. When yes. Nancy Pelosi and all of these other Democrats make stock trades and puts and, and buys on companies that are about to undergo major layoffs or are about to go under some kind of merger or acquire another large company, they make tons and tons of money off of insider trading on these stocks to the direct detriment of all the workers who are routinely laid off and fired and sidelined and let go and, and demoted because of these business practices that they regulate and then gamble on. Well, and you don't even have to zoom out to the broader Democrats. We can just stick with Joe Biden because, again, the UAW is one of, if not, I believe, the largest union of graduate student workers mm -hmm. in this country. And there is not a single person in alive today who is more at fault for the college debt crisis, shackling those same exact workers into horrific working conditions to the point where many of them can't have families right. because of how fucking expensive it is to live here and because of the fact that they cannot get rid of their student debt. It's impossible and he, again, has refused over and over again to use executive authority to cancel all student debt, which he easily could do in favor of a form that they knew would not pass muster at the Supreme Court in order to gesture towards an issue that people care about without doing anything to upset the monopoly capitalist interests that Biden has served his entire life. He is the senator from fucking credit card and health insurance companies. He is personally responsible for putting millions of black people in this country in prison and destroying their employment prospects for the rest of their lives. And at the whole time that we're doing this, Sean Fain is going up there and correctly lambasting uh, Donald Trump for being an enemy of the workers. Absolutely true. For going up there and saying Donald Trump is a scab. No worker should ever vote for them because what unions are about are solidarity and Donald Trump is the exact opposite of that. Well, what are you saying to the fucking workers in Palestine by saying we care about a ceasefire, but we're going to go endorse the guy who's sending the weapons to go blow up thousands of Palestinian workers? You can't cannot say you believe in solidarity and do something like this. That's my problem with this. Yeah, and I mean, I the also just the quick turn is just so uh surprising in that like it goes from the rhetoric of, you know, uh he must earn it because there was literally like the day before him saying like oh, well, you know, if if Joe Biden actually does something or whatever, and then suddenly it's the next day and he's about to come out in, in favor of Biden, then Biden is at this thing? Is it that the Democrats were like, uh, all right, you said something, and so now this is the only time that we're willing to come out? or some, I don't know if there's, like, some weird, like, behind-the-scenes politics going on as well. But like, Well, I mean, there always are with these things. But yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to just say, like, 
Because then I want to be clear, as mad as I am about this, I'm not being like the UAW are traitors to the U.S. working class and you should not support them. They're an evil. That's no, that that's stupid. The, the These organizing fights the UAW are doing are still incredibly important. And I do think Sean Fain believes the stuff that he's saying. It's but it's 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 just wrong. And this is falling back into the same old stuff that has trapped our unions exactly where they are for 50 years. I mean, the problem I think really is that there's just this conventional wisdom that like, if you don't incorporate your union into politics in the United States, then somehow you're like gonna let the Republicans win. And it's like, the Republicans win because of the Democrats, not in spite yes. of them. That is how it works. The yes. Democrats are a wing of the Republican that clears the way for them and makes it easier for them to do stuff. The other thing about it is that like, there's this paranoid fear that if you become unmoored from one of the two big parties, whatever your institution is, that you are going to like lose your relevancy, lose your power. And maybe if you're like a consulting firm or a lobbying group, that's probably 100% true. But when you are a worker institution you are fundamentally misunderstanding where the power comes from when you hitch your wagon to the fucking democrats you are not accruing political capital you are giving it away yes. unambiguously and only it is a one-way street from the workers to the politicians and it's never been anything else yeah and i do just want to recommend there was a really really excellent piece uh alex press wrote for jacobin on this uh, called Internationalism is in Labor's Interest. I, mm -hmm. I definitely recommend folks check that out. Uh, also, just read Alex Press anyway, because she's probably the best labor journalist in the country. Likely um, the premier labor journalist in, in <laughs> it, the English-speaking like like, world, yeah. Like Louis uh, uh, Felice Leon, it's like they're kind of who I consider to be like the vanguard of labor journalism mm -hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and her piece, I think, captures a lot of these points really well and and probably would communicate them better to people who are on the more liberal end of things than my rants do. <laughs> um, a but, journalism yeah. degree is actually worth something sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. but that, I mean, also people come here for that, too. You know, but, they, but, they yeah, like the rants. So, <laughs> we know our audience. <laughs> like, look, as... as we're still going to be supporting the UAW drives. The UAW's organizing is still very exciting, but ultimately I think for us, the big takeaway, at least for me, is that like we have come very far in the labor movement in the last few years, mm -hmm. and boy, do we have a long way to go. <laughs> no kidding. It's almost like every step we take reveals more mm -hmm. possibilities, and some of those possibilities are when they were things that were like previously foreclosed on. You start to like get this moment of panic where you're like, "Oh my god, there's so much to do." It's yeah, like when you start absolutely. cleaning your house and you realize how dirty it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so. so so work stoppage is not going away, folks. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> is that a is that, yeah, wait yes, a minute. Yes, Charlie make, Daniels, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just you made that joke like like a hundred episodes ago, and I still think about it sometimes. <laughs> oh man. Um. All right. Well, as long as we are talking about major, uh, I don't even <laughs> yeah. know. I don't have a great transition. This is kind of an abrupt one. <laughs> Let's break your brains for a minute and talk about what's happening in Argentina. So the recent self, the recent election of self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist and cosplayer of Captain <laughs> Anarcho-Capitalism, Javier Millet in Argentina has caused enormous damage to the country's working class in just a matter of weeks since his election. While his planned super law allowing him to rule by decree has been delayed, the attacks on public workers and the social safety net have already greatly 
greatly hurt working class living standards. Inflation has soared, especially on the cost of critical staples like fuel. So this past Wednesday, January 24th, Argentina's organized working class launched a massive one-day general strike to protest the attacks on their class and demand that they stop. Led by the General Confederation of Labor, the CGT, millions of Argentine workers stayed home or took to the streets in protest of the government's anti-worker measures. Members of the Truck Drivers Union staged a protest caravan surrounding the Congress, snarling traffic and laying on their horns. Striking airport workers forced the cancellation of hundreds of flights, schools and public transit ground to a halt around the country, and hundreds of thousands gathered in Buenos Aires for mass protests. But President Millet wasn't phased, because his dog, who he met when he was a Roman soldier, in a coliseum all of those lifetimes ago had already warned him about all of these things that were going to happen just kidding uh, <laughs> oh you think we're making this stuff up but we're not there's it, it really is a just wild like you, we could look at the surface level policies and it is horrible the things that are going on are just absolutely like devastating to working people but if you actually like look at some of the sillier aspects of this guy's like existence oh. it's ridiculous i mean it is a meme i think if you've been on reddit for enough years you will actually realize that this is the natural evolution of the vienna austrian school of economics <laughs> which is precisely the uh, educational background from which javier Millet comes so the fact that he's like some kind of like weird reddit anarcho-capitalist freak with no taste in anything who does a bad elon musk impression most of the time actually like is checking all of the little rick and morty boxes in my mind that are checking if this guy's the kind of freak we are generating in the modern age but the tragedy farce dialect still very much in play and it mm. just keeps doubling back it's like an ouroboros it's eating its uh-huh. own ass all the time um <laughs> so since Millet took office he has been he has closed half the government ministries including those responsible for the environment and the rights of women his monetary policies have caused their currency to lose half of its value against the dollar deeply exacerbating an already existing cost of living crisis in an attempt to seemingly race the uh uh who's the the bitcoin president of um oh um, bukele? he's tr- he's trying to race bukele to have the least valued currency on the fucking yeah. planet and, i mean in one of the ways that they're doing that is by through through some like bonds program of investing in the dollar which is actually specifically designed to have rich people store all of their funds offshore outside of argentina yeah. at the same yeah, time well- while they try to figure out they say that they're going to pay the imf loans while they literally cannot do that in the current situation plus they've made an enemy in the in this way of china who was originally helping them pay the imf loans and therefore china is like i we cannot help you with this anymore well china has a great nose for financial scammery they know it (laughs) and they they shut that shit down so fast respect words do china's great at that yeah and so (laughs) they were like what's this bitcoin thing (laughs) Yeah. All right, we'll let people figure it out. And then like two years later, like, oh, this is only for scams and crimes. Yeah. All right, this is banned. This is evil. Get rid of it. Yeah. (laughs) It turns out you can just get rid of bad things sometimes. (laughs) Um, You just have to have a a couple revolutions. Um, (laughs) So... 
Federica Baeza, who is an LGBTQ activist who took part in the general strike, told The Guardian, quote, We're fighting against the way in which the far right is basically trying to eliminate our rights of existence on all levels, from healthcare to work, end quote. And Guardian reporters noted that a sign carried by one of the protesters read, quote, I'm retired. I earn 106,000 pesos, about $84 a month. I'm starving to death. Millet, you're a son of a bitch, end quote. <laughs> I appreciate a, a sign that is direct. And to the point, and really tells you everything you need to know. I mean, really, they're like, here's my income. I'm starving. Fuck you. I hope you die. Walk into the ocean, Javier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. It's because it's, you know, it's funny. Like, you have, at least in the U.S., you know, you have every single fucking stupid election cycle. The very Mm -hmm. first year we always hear, the president is just inheriting the situation from the person before them. They don't have that much impact on the monetary system, which is not true. But- the wild thing here is that, you know, you always hear about how the right is fiscally responsible and it's 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 the government spending of the left that causes inflation, which is why so many people think that's true, even though it's not and has basically nothing to do with inflation. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing. You put one of these fucking Murray Rothbard uh, anarcho-capitalist road to serfdom idiots in charge of your monetary supply, and in one month, their currency lost half its goddamn value. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And they're not even under international sanctions. Right. <laughs> he's like speed running, turning them so, them into a colony. Oh yeah, he's he's um, he's well, going I, like von Mises ex Nick Land a little bit, just well, like ex Pinochet. Yeah, he, sure. <laughs> he's also very openly like a like maybe not exactly using the word puppet, but like a puppet of the United States and Israel, and has oh, openly he, said shit a, like that. He's a comprador and, and like, it weirdly honest about it yeah. is the thing. <laughs> like, yeah, all the people who are rich here should be able to keep their, their, their money offshore and tax-free and go and live in the U.S. That's good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Which is just like, what? He's how kind of like... Work? How does that play? Remember how, like, pathetic fucking Juan Guaido was? The thing mm, is, is that, yep. like, Javier Malay is the exact same guy, except when yes. the CIA program to put you in charge works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, <laughs> and also, I don't know. Guaido seemed to be copping a little bit more of the Obama era respectability shit, whereas Javier Malay is definitely like a 2023 Reddit guy in the post-Trump kind of era. But well, I also think Guaido was just mostly out to steal as much of that money for sure. himself as possible. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So, it, it, in response to all of this happening in Argentina, the libertarian fascist government led by Malay has responded. By attacking the workers, aiming to identify as many strikers as possible and cut any social services that they receive for the crime of dissent, Millet's security minister attacked, quote-unquote, mafioso unionists, (laughs) urban nexalites, for striking. Yeah. Two weeks ago, she demanded the unions pay millions in fines for earlier protests. So this is just a, a hodgepodge of so many things. Like, try uh-huh. to make the unions pay a fine. Take away their social security services. Track them down and get their faces and names. Call them mafiosos. Uh, like, my bingo card is full. I have every well, bingo. Every square is full. The mafiosos thing is just wild with the way that they're, the fucking capitalists are literally mm-hmm. the people well, yeah, who would fall mafio- into that category. Mafiosos my guy the economic school you're from was founded by a dude who was previously economic advisor to engelbert dolphus noted austro-fascist that's the <laughs> literal name of his political ideology was austro-fascism 
and that guy invented the economics that you're using right now and you want to call people mafiosos again ocean walk mm-hmm. into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I mean, it, but this is the thing. Is this what they always do? It's it's the the classic projection strategy that, unfortunately, because you know the same people m- making these lies are the ones who own all the media outlets. They have a big platform from which to to shout their projection. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if Malay's proposed omnibus bill passes, which it seems like that's totally up in the air because it's totally it deranged and is wildly unconstitutional and violates a bunch of other articles of the Argentine government that are important, but also it could just happen anyway. Um, If it passes, Millet will have essentially pulled off an electoral coup, stripping away nearly every civil liberty for Argentine workers. The bill eliminates the right to strike, the right to protest, and even revokes bail for anyone convicted of protesting the government. So yeah, Pinochet, you were really on the money earlier, Dan. We love Um, the freedom of speech of a libertarian society, right? Yeah, libertarians scheming to take over the world and leave you alone. Not fucking true, as it turns out. (laughs) Yeah, well, and that's the thing is, though, every one of these is characterized as we're protecting the right to free currency, basically being like, if you're protesting, you're preventing people from free movement and you're taking away their rights. If you're striking, you're preventing free commerce and taking away people's rights. It's it's all it's every one of these things is inversion and it drives me fucking nuts. Money is people. People, but people are not people. Yeah. People are property. Yeah. 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 So uh, in spite of all this, the strike has united the largest labor confederations in action for the first time in years. This broad working class unity, including workers, organizations and activists from across all of Argentina's working class, forms the basis for a potential united front to stop Millet's assault. Pablo Moyano, head of the truck drivers union, said, quote, This is historic. It's an enormous mobilization just 45 days after the new government took over. Already, people are making themselves heard. End quote. And And I got to say, like, 45 days that uh, this uh is this has gone downhill incredibly quickly. It's not good. I mean, here's the thing is like you. I don't want to do vulgar Marxism, but if you accelerate the contradictions of a developed capitalist successful colonial project like argentina in a matter of a little over a month i feel like you are basically begging for mass social unrest in whatever Uh form it's going to take place and if the argentine working class is sufficiently organized they're going to end up in charge of that hopefully yeah (laughs) but unfortunately given argentina's history uh there could be a huge amount of violence in the process. I mean, yeah. is there a more confusing country that this could have happened in? India, maybe? And it is kind of also happening in India, just India's yeah. so fucking big, it's not happening all on the national scale all at once. Well, and because our government supports all the horrible things Modi is doing, it, that stuff doesn't get reported in our media. That's so. true. And Modi's been in charge for a long time compared to yeah. Malay, who just got in charge. But. You know? But yeah, it's definitely, Argentina is going to be a, a situation to watch. I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we talk about this this year. Oh, hell no. So. no, but something that we talk about every year, which mm-hmm. is uh, something that we, you know, as labor nerds want to uh, make sure to bring up, is the annual release of the Bureau of Labor Statistics report. And uh, this is kind of interesting, and uh, it's going to show a trend that we kind of saw last year, but but in a, a you know, I guess, well, I mean, last year, for the report that was released the previous year, uh, but, but anyway, let, let's just get into it real quick. This annual review uh, on how labor 
how the labor movement has changed in the last year uh, is always really full of vital data for organizers to look at and gauge how various tactics and strategies have been working, as well as just put, you know, like a broader big picture view of the American workforce in perspective. And with this big upsurge that we've seen, the uh, and, and not only that, but the militancy of the labor movement uh, has kind of these statistics give us a perspective on that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so, like, this year's report, uh, once again, shows the kind of contradictions in our economy. On the one hand, union membership in the private sector increased by nearly 200,000 workers. But unfortunately, in the private sector, it fell by 50,000 workers. And I mean, this is generally an effect of the post-Janus attacks that have happened on public unions, not only just on the national level, but like on the state level as well. I mean, like we talked about earlier in Wisconsin, the ability for just decertifying unions through that process that has not been rolled back yet. Um, I mean, and also just there's so many different states that make it more mm-hmm. difficult to uh, even collect dues or anything that makes it so that unions can continue to work. But overall, the number of union members increased by 139,000 uh, over 2022, which, I mean, that's a that's a good increase. And on the yeah, other so hand, the, though... The raw number of union members in the U.S. did go up. Right. That's the good news. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like, if we take into account the actual number of jobs that have been created or or that came into existence, uh, that happened a little bit faster than this rate. And so overall, the union membership rose, but the density of unions dropped by 0.1 percent. Uh, kind of again, because I believe that that was almost the exact same thing that happened last year, uh, yep. leaving us pretty stagnant around the 10% mark of workers in the U.S. having having a union. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what we're looking at here, because I, I think these, rep- these numbers are always important to look at, and it's funny because I always see the same take every time these numbers come out, and they're just like, everybody's talking about the union upsurge, but people need to slow their roll. And I'm like, that's I understand what you're saying because you're like, we can't get ahead of ourselves and think we've won victories that we haven't. But I'm like, I don't think people are looking at these numbers and being like, all right, we got everything solved. <laughs> I don't like, I don't actually think there's a danger of us getting ahead of ourselves there. So I do think people sometimes rush to be a bit overly negative on these. What now that's not to say that it's, there isn't bad news in this. There certainly is, but I think what it really highlights, and we'll get into some more of those numbers in a sec too, is that it's like, it's not that the union movement isn't popular or that people don't want to join unions. It's that our system has been expertly crafted over the last century to make that really fucking hard. (laughs) Yeah, especially with the expectation that everyone must go through the state, Mm -hmm. you know, system. Uh, Not that that is bad in all cases, because having the actual legal protections to make sure that the you know company has to bargain or there's a path. I mean, like just recognition strikes were made. Like if go back to some of the uh, history that we're going over now in our overtime series, recognition strikes being like the primary fight and like. Uh, business owners would would rather give a 10% raise than recognize a union because of the uh, control that they have. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, that ability to get the recognition is a good thing, you know, with all of the other caveats. So you got to take all of the things into consideration. 
But so, I mean, like in the raw numbers of union members, the data shows a lot about the state of the movement, which while union density may have dropped again, but but the effect of the unions themselves was very clear with over 900,000 union members winning wage increases over 10% last year, buoyed by major the major struggles at U at, at UPS and the big three automakers, as well as the actors and writers who went on strike in Hollywood and well, and I guess across the the country, but mostly in Hollywood. But I mean, like those things are also a major indication. If we wanted to just look at like, oh well, we can pick the bad number. Let's why don't we just pick <laughs> out the bad number and be sad? Like, no, that's not really how we can actually. Uh, assess where our movement is when we see you know the more rank and file turn the more militant people the bigger strikes the literal like the size of the strikes themselves being historic in so many aspects when we talk about the uh adjunct faculty of of universities or even just like the the university of california in this episode I, i think that what we see is more of a qualitative based on the quantitative uh information that we have that does show that there is a labor upsurge and i mean we could be pessimistic all we want about the oh the density dropped by 0.1 percent but i mean like we also have to take into consideration the the actual like real downturn that we have been facing for 40 50 years at this point well, yeah, and I think ultimately it, it it points to a few things. Like one, obviously, what it is, the the last thing about the big raises shows what we talk about every week, which is that you have a union. Union makes a real fucking difference. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just like we're ideologically, you know, in favor of unions existing. They make a direct, immediate, material impact on the lives of everybody involved, uh, and that's extremely clear in these numbers. But the other thing that I think is so clear is that you know everything is set up against the workers getting those unions in the first place because of how effective they are. And so, you know, there's a few aspects to that. One, obviously, labor law is a huge part of it, uh, and people will interpret that in different ways. People will see that say, oh, see, you have all this energy, but it can't be turned into unions. That's why we need to support the Democrats so that we can have a better NLRB. I might argue that perhaps the NLRB and confining our organizing to work only within that system that was designed by our enemies is perhaps a limiting factor rather than an enabling one. Um, But uh, in addition to that, (laughs) I do think that one of the other things that it points out is that like, while there are some unions pouring a lot of resources into organizing on a scale that we need, there's also plenty that while they are doing work to organize new workers, like it, we need a, another order of magnitude of investment in that to really hit the numbers we need. Cause it's great to add 200,000 to the, to, uh, you know, members to the union movement or 130,000 or whatever the number was, but it's like, we need to be adding millions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to say, we'll just go organize millions of workers than to actually do it, obviously. Uh, but I do think that people sometimes see that and they're like, see, that's why we need to reform labor law. And that's why we need to keep voting for Democrats like we have for the last 50 years without getting like, any labor right. laws. Wouldn't <laughs> it be more in our interest to uh, hold the Democrats accountable in some <laughs> sense and say Damn, uh, you actually have to do the thing to get the endorsement? But but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's what it's really showing us is that it's like unions are effective. But it's we are going to have to invest a huge amount of resources from our whole class in in the organizing efforts needed to really push this back. Like union density 
in a qualitative in a qualitatively different direction. But we, so another thing too, like, cause I saw a really good uh, thread breaking down the data as well from uh, Heidi Sheerholtz, president of the Economic Policy Institute, which is a progressive think tank. And she's also the former chief economist for the Department of Labor. And she broke down some of the like more key points from the report uh, on Twitter and pointing out several key takeaways, which included that, uh, you know, Unions continue to be a force to fight against racism because, you know, like uh, we see that one of the biggest ways that you can fight against the racial uh, wage gap is through union membership. And, and we see that reflected in the union numbers where workers of color actually supported unions and joined unions at a rate outstripping the national rate where we actually had over 300,000 new union members of color this year, but that that was offset somewhat by white membership and unions actually declining by 119,000 members, uh, which obviously is just partially due to shifts in, in, you know, companies, but also probably due partially to the ideological assault on, on workers being attempting to, you know, incite nativism in white workers and, and weaponize potential splits in the working class. Uh, but that being said, the racial gap in unionization that does remain quite small, which is good across all the board. Everybody's still averaging about 10%, which is close to the, the average, which obviously I would love all of those numbers to be higher, but we're not in the, you know, bad days of say the, 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 the twenties and thirties. If you have like, you know, two or three or four times as many white members mm -hmm. because of racist union policies. Instead, we've seen, you know, a pretty solid equalization along the board there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think the big takeaway, uh, one of the biggest ones, and, and she mentioned this in the thread too, that I, I thought was so important to look at this and what the one that we should kind of hold up as organizers above all the other ones, which is that when surveyed, there are 60 million workers who said, on top of the existing 16 million union members, that they would vote yes for a union today in their workforce. And while that's obviously an indictment of the horrific labor law system we have, that those folks don't already have the union that they want, that those are all, every single one of them, people we should be organizing. And there's 60 million of them. <laughs> and that's just the people who responded to this survey or, mm -hmm. you know, extrapolated based on statistics. Right. But like, so there's a lot of work for us to do, and that can be daunting. But the way I think that we can look at it is the potential of what the labor movement is capable of if we just put in that work is is like unfathomably high. Yeah. I mean, when you say we need to be getting that number up to millions, the potential there is not just like some idealistic notion. It's based on the fact that there are easily that many number of people who want to be union members. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Speaking of people who answer surveys, yeah. we want you to answer a survey. Are you <laughs> uh, ready? I thought you were just going to say, speaking of people who answer surveys, the meme review. No, anyway. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> would you? are you prepared to move to the meme review now? Please type <laughs> one on your phones for yes, and please type two on your phones for absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, this only works on a touchtone phone. <laughs> yeah. So all of our listeners who live in 2004. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this first one is uh, a nice, uh, simple one where it says how to have fun as an adult. And there's a wiki how image of someone just laying in bed. <sighs> yes. <laughs> I did that this Which, morning. I mean, like, I, I agree. 
I I do uh, I, enjoy that. It's 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 pretty fun. I saw one of those <laughs> the other, something like this the other day where somebody was tweeting out. They were just like. Uh, they're just like, you know, everybody talks about like how they want to be, but the way I want to be is horizontal at all times. (laughs) I am basically like a slug. Stop romanticizing the grind and start romanticizing whatever this is. And it's the sleepy time bear. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, Our next meme, this is an Ellie Valley illustration, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is an Ellie Valley illustration of a grotesque Biden and Netanyahu uh, digging mass graves um and i gotta you know look this one up for yourself because uh ellie's art style really does carry a lot of the weight of the image mm-hmm. uh and in it you have biden saying folks democracy is on the ballot freedom is on the ballot and then netanyahu's speech bubble simply says the hague won't stop us um it- yeah, he, and this is also, I mean, one other thing to point out is Biden is just hanging his arm right there on Netanyahu, yeah. real, like, buddy-buddy, and they both are just absolutely ghoulish. It, I know some folks don't like Ellie Valley's grotesque art style, and I don't, and grotesque is not a value judgment, it's a descriptor, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I do think that Ellie Valley does have some of, like, the, you know, most political cartoons these days are perhaps the dumbest yes. and empty headedest form of media there is Ellie Valley is the opposite of that. It's like, this is what political cartoons are supposed to be and what they should be and yeah. what they can be, even if they are look kind of fucked up, which is again, because of the stuff they're describing and the people they're describing are just that fucked well, up. It's also like, I don't know. It's like a perfect Tim and Eric style recapitulation of the fundamentals of a form, right? Where like you, you're like, okay, the characters are supposed to represent not just caricatures of that person, but also are supposed to have their policies and their ideologies mm-hmm. and their relevancy to different issues baked into the visual presentation. So when you have this style, that's like a lot of different thicknesses of line art and super highly expressive caricatures of faces and stuff, it really lets you bake a lot of meaning into something that otherwise would just you know could have been portrayed by stick figures like if you really wanted to just go and be like joe biden a bad guy netanyahu a bad guy you could do a randall monroe xkcd comic and get your point across sure. but ellie is bringing something to the visual uh element of this medium that i think really just takes it like over the top compared to other mm-hmm. political cartoonists right and i mean yeah. if we really wanted to dig into this even more we got Bet- netanyahu saying the hag won't stop us while us in this photo is biden and netanyahu yeah, yeah well, and also absolutely. you know as much as i i do respect uh in many ways the criminal case being brought uh at the international criminal court the, the dutch don't have a history of stopping atrocities that's just not part of their whole deal so (laughs) yeah but i mean at the same that's never really been the point of that ruling which was really to give the countries of the global south who actually follow international law the legal justification to enact harsh measures against israel as long as it continues right Uh, which hopefully we start seeing very soon Mm -hmm. um but regardless protests and and pressure of, of all forms have to continue but anyways uh, this moving back into the, I guess, uh, uh, more uh, lighthearted part of the meme review, uh, into a more cla- meme review classic. Uh, this one, this is a classic fuck your landlord meme for being such a piece of shit. So this has got a picture of a uh, probably, I would say, 55-year-old, uh, maybe 60-year-old white guy who looks to be named Dennis, um, <laughs> just, just visually looks like a Dennis to me. 
Um, this is no, no shade at any of our listeners if your name is Dennis. <laughs> Sorry, Dennis. Um, but so it's this this guy's in like a, a cheap suit and, it, and it's like, your landlord. It's not me who's choosing to increase your rent. It's the market. And then the second panel is just the same guy copy pasted 50 times labeled the, <laughs> in air quotes, the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, one thing that's... Uh, often overlooked in the in the media press is just like uh uh or just obfuscated is like oh it's some some ephemeral nature of the ways in which our market forces function it's like well no i mean like a bunch of these these people are all all the same and they are all doing it they're just working together the whole thing is a fucking scam they're they're all the same guy and it's so funny because like yeah in some towns it's like some of them are ladies or some of them are a slightly different version of this guy but they're all still functionally the same guy and then you Mm -hmm. go to a different town and it's like oh no actually in this town they are all literally the same guy there's one guy (laughs) owns all the land (laughs) oh yeah, yeah especially when you get into some rural areas there are still land barons out there or s- small cities or even uh like where i where we grew up uh small enough cities where they call themselves things like villages that's usually a pretty good indication that there's a land monopoly going on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely like the paolino family in mm-hmm. providence but um <laughs> yeah john you want to do this one so i can do the last one? Oh yeah so this next one seems to this is a reddit post from chapo trap house but their screen <laughs> Their profile picture is the Citations Needed logo, which I think is yeah. a fun bit of clownery. And it's a, it's a photo of a, of a parrot that is colored so that it's very similar to this peach that it's sitting next to. And, like, really, the coloration on the parrot and the peach are strikingly similar. Yeah. It might be a cockatiel or something. Yeah. If you told me that, 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 that this, this bird evolved in the same habitat as this peach specifically to hide from predators, I would believe you. Yeah, I'd believe that right off the bat. And the caption Or that it's says, photoshopped. Or that it's photoshopped, <laughs> I'd believe that immediately, too. Um, the old clone stamp tool. And so <laughs> the caption here says, The worker sinks to the level of a commodity and thus becomes the most wretched commodity. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, my I, only I retort always... to this is that that bird didn't make that peach <laughs> <laughs> you know, also we have not necessarily seen anything to indicate that that peach is a commodity i don't see a sticker on it that it was sold maybe the bird found that peach yeah that's maybe true that's just it's true <laughs> this is the kind of deep analysis that you get from our show where we look at a bird and a peach that looks similar and marks <laughs> I we should not be unfair you... and ascribe capitalist intent to this bird. That's right. <laughs> I thought for a second you called it banalysis as like a portmanteau of banal and analysis. And I was like, wow, that's killer. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's for our next meme. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And speaking of our next meme, I, I just love this one. This is our last meme. So it's a little bit more wholesome, which is, uh, uh, I'll just, I'll just read it from the top. So we got dog. I think that the job interview went well. And then in uh, in asterisks is as uh, you know like an action it says looks in a mirror and sees that my ear was inside out the whole time and then there's this brown this like uh, a chocolate lab or something like that with its ear inside out and it just like staring like sad at the camera as if you were like looking in the mirror at yourself really <laughs> disappointed and it just uh, in white text over his face just says son of a <laughs> See, that's me. Now, my to- rec- my one recommendation here for a punch up, and granted, this is steal- stolen from another format, 
But I would I would put a second panel in it, and it's the dog just running away, and it's the dog being like, well, wait, I'm a dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to remind you that these concerns about job interviews and employment are social constructs and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not necessarily natural for all forms of life. Exactly. That's <laughs> like when I go out to get the mail, and then I come back inside, and I realize that my fly was down the entire time. And then in the last panel of the meme is Dale Gribble saying, it's my yard. <laughs> Hell Print yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everybody who supports us on Patreon. And if you would like to support us, because we are an entirely listener-supported show, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We are at the beginning of our History of Women's Struggles in Labor in the United States series, and it is going to be a long one with a lot of pieces. You also get access to all of our previous overtime episodes and anything else that we had released behind the paywall if you are a patron. Another way that you can help us out is by writing us a review somewhere, uh, following us all the places, sharing the shows with your friends, uh, and and we really, really appreciate that. You can find all the links for that at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game, table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everyone